Welcome to a special series on the Acquisition Talk podcast that gives you an audiobook tour of my research project titled Program to Fail, The Rise of Central Planning in Defense Acquisition 1945-1975. to I'm Eric Lothran of the Baroni Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. You can find this book for free and over 1,300 blog posts on my website, acquisitiontalk.com. Robert McNamara's most important management tool escaped the 1969 to 1971 reforms of Laird and Packard. As the conduit to congressional appropriations, the planning, programming, budgeting system continued to coordinate defense activities. Competing perspectives were suppressed in favor of a single favored position. The Unified Defense Plan presented industry with a coordinated collection of single buyers. In other words, the industry faced a monopsony across defense commodities. Representing the only game in town, firms competed less on delivering useful systems to the government and more on brochuresmanship in order to secure the flow of funds. After all was said and done, the end product had no competitors to compare it to in order to judge efficiency of decisions actually made. Competition not only regulates incentives by a prospect of punishment and reward, just as importantly, the competitive process solves critical problems of knowledge. In fact, competition is most important under the presence of uncertainty. Planners cannot know what is optimal outside the process in which alternative courses of action are developed, brought into competition, and evaluated. Friedrich Hayek described how, quote, in sporting events, examinations, the awarding of government contracts, or the bestowal of prizes for poems, not to mention science, it would be patently absurd to sponsor a contest if we knew in advance who the winner would be, end quote. The information on which sports team performs better or which project plan provides the most value is only discovered in the process of competition. Otherwise, the rivalry is wasteful if one could reliably predetermine the winner. Dynamic competition results in the emergence of complex patterns of economic behavior and consequently technological growth. It is very different from the type of competition taught in economics textbooks or practiced in defense management. In economics, we are told about perfect competition, a concept which relies on bizarre assumptions of complete information and product homogeneity. In defense, we are told that contracts are awarded competitively, even when solutions are pre-specified and the contractors who buy in get bailed out. While officials in the Department of Defense have often talked about the benefits of competition, the policies they've pursued continually run counter to the one real condition necessary for competitive forces to occur, free entry. Contrary to traditional wisdom, the history of defense acquisition has shown that the advertisement and open bid process does not provide assurance of free entry. When government is the only buyer, free entry requires an organization designed for pluralism. In this episode of Program to Fail, we discuss the integral role of rivalrous competition in the discovery of knowledge and the growth of technology. It finds that policymakers dream about a single best plan and pre-coordinating military service behavior 
to avoid duplication, competition, and overlap is a false economy, one that stamps out the true creative potential of the American people and harms national security. Before James Schlesinger finished up the economics program at Harvard in 1956, he had already lined up a teaching job at the University of Virginia. Just as Schlesinger moved down to Charlottesville, the university began assembling a unique blend of economists, including G. Warren Nutter, James Buchanan, Gordon Tullock, and Ronald Coase. While most economics departments focused on mathematical approaches to finding the equilibrium, the UVA economists applied their field to law, constitution, and public administration. Schlesinger found himself immersed in the dynamic environment of what became called the Virginia School of Political Economy. Quite separate from other professors, however, Schlesinger's thoughts revolved around the Department of Defense. He recalled how a brief exchange at a naval war college crystallized the connection in his mind between economic analysis and defense. It inspired him to write a book, The Political Economy of National Security. As the title suggested, it attempted to apply the ideas from the Virginia School to defense problems. Schlesinger's first book was released in early 1960. Surprisingly, there weren't many books published about the economics of defense at the time. Although his book was poised to generate attention, the timing proved unfortunate. The estimable Charles Hitch and Roland McKean had also been working on their classic, The Economics of Defense in the Nuclear Age. They went to publication just weeks after Schlesinger. Compared to Schlesinger, a defense outsider, Hitch and McKean occupied a formidable location at Rand from which to market their book. The advantage did not stop their collaborator from releasing a negative advertisement about Schlesinger. Racing to get published in what seemed like the first available place, a review of Schlesinger appeared in April 15th issue of Science. It was penned by Stephen Enke. He was the third economist hired by Rand, and in 1953 founded their logistics department. Though his name did not appear in the title, he contributed a full chapter to the Hitch McKean book. Enke was also an eminent university professor, so his judgment weighed on the 31-year-old Schlesinger heavily. Enke wrote of the book, quote, this is one written by a professional economist for laymen. Some of the chapters seem rather disjointed, and the treatment of various subjects is definitely uneven in quality and originality. End quote. His harshest criticism, however, was saved for the question of economic efficiency. Enke summarily dismissed Schlesinger's discussion. It covered too small a portion of the problem to be useful. He then went on to set Schlesinger straight about the nature of the problem conveyed by Hitch and McKean. The only points on which he could praise the young Schlesinger were those irrelevant to defense planning. It took Schlesinger more than a year to gather a response. By that time, the basic planning programming budgeting system laid out by Hitch and McKean had been adopted in the Department of Defense. Hitch himself became ASD comptroller, and his reforms were in full swing. In the meantime, Schlesinger took Enke's criticisms to heart. He focused on the issues presented by systems analysis and program budgeting. In a mostly laudatory review of Hitch and McKean's book, Schlesinger inserted a negative comment. He attacked the most novel aspect of the book, systematic quantitative analysis. 
He distinguished between low-level problems, such as the length of an aircraft runway, and high-level problems, such as whether to devote additional resources to missiles or anti-submarine warfare. Schlesinger found that only low-level problems are amenable to quantitative analysis. For high-level problems, he said that they would fail to handle the complexities of choosing a strategy. The reason for this, he said, are the existence of uncertainty and the impossibility of comparing incommensurables. By 1961, Schlesinger's review had a more receptive audience at Rand. After Charles Hitch left his position as the chief of economics division, Burton Klein took it over. Klein carried forward the ideas of evolution and competitive development after the departure of Armin Alchin. The two remained close collaborators for many years to come, with Alchin working just a few miles away at the UCLA campus. Klein's leadership of the economics department marked a new era of RAND. Even members of the old guard, such as Roland McKean, moved closer into alignment with Klein after witnessing the centralizing effects of PBBS under McNamara. In 1963, Schlesinger moved across the country to join the economics department at Rand. Schlesinger brought with him valuable concepts from the Virginia School on the role of bureaucratic incentives and political bargaining. Under Klein's approving watch, Roland McKean began cultivating Schlesinger's arguments on the PBBS. Within a year, the two married their ideas in a paper called Defense Planning and Budgeting, the Issue of Centralized Control. In 1963, Burton Klein became a special advisor to the Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara. With Charles Hitch and others deeply immersed in implementing the PBBS reforms, some complaints from the services were starting to pop up. In order to anticipate the implications of PBBS, Klein tasked McKean and Schlesinger with a study. They in turn concluded that the expected challenges wouldn't arise due to the PBB system itself, but due to the centralization of decisions that seemed to accompany it. McKean and Schlesinger deny the centralization brought some improvements. It better coordinated interrelated decisions requiring large expenditures. Yet with uncertainty, the cost of communication increases. Centralized decision processes are forced to simplify a wide array of information. The bottleneck generates a small number of increasingly important decisions. The result is a neglect of alternative solutions and the full range of costs. As McKean and Schlesinger wrote, of analyses performed under uncertainty, quote, they are perhaps especially prone to ignore certain costs, probably because these costs are so hard to measure. If such costs are neglected, people are in effect insisting that performance be improved or efficiency increased, no matter what the cost, end quote. Without considering the full costs and gains of a decision borne by all participants, quantitative analyses could lead to gross inefficiencies in the name of efficiency. Indeed, centralization avoids the indecision of political bargaining precisely by neglecting costs that may fall on others. The authors pointed to numerous studies that found centralization permits faster decisions through the suppression of disagreement and of deviant expressions of opinion. With their distance from critics, top management may then generate an echo chamber of bias. Heightened uniformity often leads to overconfidence, which causes leveraged decisions rather than hedging. As the quality of thinking deteriorates, those at the top become more sensitive to challenges to approved plans, leading to further suppression of dissent and greater uniformity. Deviant opinions, however, may reflect a more accurate view of reality if uncertainty is high. As Roland McKean summarized elsewhere, quote, 
With centralization, one set of views plays a greater role in decision-making, and dissenting views play lesser roles. In other words, there are fewer checks and balances on the view of the central group. And if central managers try to control in much detail, they find it imperative to simplify decision-making and to make changing the program rather difficult. Finally, lower-level incentives to dissent and criticize and urge changes may diminish if such activities begin to be unrewarding. All of these forces can, in the long run, produce disadvantages. 1. The suppression of alternatives. 2. A neglect of part of the cost and gains from alternative policies. And 3. A neglect of uncertainties. One group's view of the future will be less diversified than separate judgments of a multiplicity of groups. Dominance of one group will tend to discard trade-offs and options that others may take seriously. To treat certain costs and gains more lightly than others would, and to regard a particular subset of contingencies and uncertainties as being the major ones. End quote. The RAND analysts emphasize how decentralization had the best effects in research and development. Almost as if they were quoting Armin Alchin, they wrote how, quote, diversity in weapon systems provides a hedge against uncertainty, end quote. However, McNamara's centralization of the Pentagon had concentrated decisions on fewer systems, each of which was expected to perform numerous missions. Pointing to the TFX aircraft, later the F-111, they wondered whether uniweaponism had gone too far. Stated differently, was the Pentagon putting too many eggs in one basket? What McKean and Schlesinger added to the debate was linking weapon systems diversity to the social process of bargaining. They feared the views of one group prevailing without adequate checks and balances. These ideas were influenced by Charles Lindblom, who in the 1950s had been advocating incremental decisions and political bargaining. In his 1955 paper, Bargaining, the Hidden Hand of Government, Lindblom likened the bargaining mechanism in the public sector to the price mechanism in the market economy. They both serve the same role of imparting a fuller range of costs and gains into decision-making. As Lindblom wrote, quote, Politics is not the art or science pursued by philosopher kings who find the public interest in the sky but is a craft practiced by negotiators who know that the public interest can never be anything else but the common goals of different people, end quote. Michael Pogliani made similar arguments in the context of science. In his 1962 classic, The Republic of Science, he argued that, quote, the community of scientists is organized in a way which resembles certain features of a body politic and works according to economic principles. Authority is established between scientists, not above them, end quote. For Pogliani, science has no single authority. Instead, joint opinion is reached when each scientist has overlapping knowledge with other scientists so that the whole of science will be covered by chains and networks of overlapping neighborhoods. From the competing judgments interwoven in the network emerges a consensus. Pogliani concluded that, quote, any authority which would undertake to direct the work of the scientists centrally would bring the whole progress of science virtually to a standstill, end quote. 
Irving Janis later popularized the problems arising from too little dissent within the team, creating groupthink in the 1970s. He focused on foreign policy disasters such as Pearl Harbor, the Bay of Pigs, and the Vietnam War. In each case, he found that the suppression of contradictory views led to disaster. Janice explained how groupthink occurred when people engaged in concurrence-seeking, which can become so dominant for a cohesive in-group that it overrides a realistic appraisal of alternative courses of action. Janice summarized two symptoms of groupthink. First, an overestimation of the group leading to illusions of invulnerability and heightened sense of morality. Second, groupthink leads to closed-mindedness. It causes self-censorship, stereotyped outgroups, and stifled dissenters, all leading to the illusion of unanimity. For weapon systems acquisition, McKean and Schlesinger pointed to the effects of what later became called groupthink. Reduced exploration of alternatives, neglected costs, and overconfidence all led to a bias for safe proposals. At the extreme, only well-understood ideas could be justified and explored. Yet for McKean and Schlesinger, safe proposals were anything but safe. They led to highly unsafe gambles if neglected contingencies materialized. Safe proposals looked to avoid uncertainty rather than to resolve it. As scientist Hans Seil understood, quote, The more manifestly sensible and practical a research project, the closer it is to the commonplace what we already know. Thus, paradoxically, knowledge about seemingly far-fetched and practical phenomena may prove the likeliest to yield novel, basic information and lead us to the new heights of discovery. End quote. The problem Sile alluded to is that safe proposals all work from the same base of articulated knowledge. It conforms to expectations of where technology should go based on where it has already been. While the process provides a basis for setting cost and schedule targets, it also limits the discovery of new information. It could even push systems into inferior equilibria by neglecting conjecture based on unarticulated knowledge. The history of innovation has proven that the most important advances required leaps into the unknown, where no group of reasonable people could agree on the expected outcome. As Boeing Vice President George Scherer said, quote, Anything that the majority agrees to probably is wrong for tomorrow. It is right for today, but probably not right for tomorrow. I wonder about such wild ideas as whether you could ever fly an airplane with a jet engine, or have an atomic bomb, or radar, or many other great things we base our defense upon. At the time they were initiated, certainly any group of 10 people you could have get together, presumably knowledgeable, would probably have voted them all down." For McKean and Schlesinger, the problems presented by centralization, the neglect of alternatives, costs, and uncertainties, were independent of the planning, programming, budgeting system. RAND analyst Melvin Anchin agreed that, quote, The program budget is a neutral tool. It has no politics, end quote. Several others concurred. Some even went further. James Farmer, for example, suggested that the PBBS permitted greater 
decentralization. For Aaron Woldovsky, on the other hand, changes to the budget meant a change in politics. He stressed how the PBBS was inherently centralizing. Similarly, Alan Schick documented how centralized control motivated the rise of the program budget in the early 20th century. Quote, PBB reverses the informational and decisional flow. Before the calls for estimates is issued, top policy has to be made. End quote. The different views on whether PBBS led to centralization can be traced to the role of multi-year costing. For Alan Schick, as well as Charles Hitch, the essence of the program budget was to calculate the full cost of outputs in order to facilitate trade-offs and control. Quote, the environment of choice under traditional circumstances is incremental. In PBB, it is teletic, end quote. In other words, in the PBBS, outcomes can be costed in full and implemented as planned without zigzags or breaks. For McKean and Schlesinger, however, the PBBS could support incremental decisions at the lower levels. They criticized instead the Pentagon's Blue Book, which held approved financial plans for five years and four structure plans for eight years. It led to major arguments in 1963, for example, over the fourth level of Minuteman program in 1969. Quote, but why should such a controversy be permitted to develop in the first place? End quote. The authors pointed to a culture that resisted changes to plan once specified. They complained that, quote, frequent changes of mind make one look like either an oaf or a troublemaker, end quote. With the Blue Book, managers presumed that the future was fixed. As a partial remedy, McKean and Schlesinger recommended providing untrammeled funds for research and development to the lower levels and keeping parts of the budget to be scheduled. Schlesinger's foray into the world of defense management proved a boon to his career. When congressional backlash to PBBS started in 1967, Schlesinger was sought out by Congress to provide an assessment. In 1969, he left Rand to become assistant director of the Bureau of the Budget. Then he went on to chair the Atomic Energy Commission, and after a short stint as director of the CIA, he landed a spot as Secretary of Defense on July 2, 1973. Schlesinger had never worked in the Department of Defense before, only on the margins. Like others, he found Laird's reforms fundamentally sound. Implementation of his predecessor's policies, however, left much to be desired. He found a like mind in the new Undersecretary of the Army, Hermann Stott. In discussions with Stott and Army Chief of Staff Creighton Abrams, it became apparent to Schlesinger that the Army staff was bloated due to OSD involvement in weapon systems. He gave the Army his blessing to form a committee to study the problem in the defense acquisition process. The Army Materiel Acquisition Review Committee, or AMARC, got started in December 1973, and on April 1st of the following year, it released a highly critical report. The reforms of Melvin Laird and David Packard had done little to turn back McNamara's centralizing policies. The AMARC report found that the Army continued to be profoundly affected by leadership in the office of the Secretary of Defense. Responding to the necessity of OSD approval, the Army staff created multiple layering to comply with the demands. 
In one typical example, the program manager of the heavy lift helicopter provided 14 briefings above the level of the Army Materiel Command over 31 working days. The ordeal included five trips between St. Louis and Washington, flanking the Christmas holiday. Most of the manager's time was informing officials at the Army staff and headquarters level who themselves briefed two or three layers up into a fragmented OSD. The Army reported how, quote, OSD is now hydra-headed. Questions pour from these many heads. The questions can overlap or deal with the same issues. They appear not to be coordinated at the OSD level. The result is tri-service organizational entropy gain, end quote. The Army defined entropy to be the amount of energy in a system not available for doing work. The remarkable complaint perhaps reflected the emotional support coming from the highest levels. Schlesinger requested another review by the Navy. The next year, the Navy Marine Acquisition Review Committee, or NMARC, released its report, finding much agreement with the Army. For example, the Navy said that, quote, It is the clear conviction of the NMARC that sound management would call for a substantial withdrawal of OSD from specific participation in individual systems acquisition programs, end quote. The layering of decisions had decoupled authority, responsibility, and accountability. The problem of multiple layering was quite a bit different than McKean and Schlesinger anticipated. They believe that centralization would simply suppress alternative programs in favor of one group's views about technology or military environments. In 1964, that was a fair expectation. Nearly all program plans filtered through or originated from the Office of Systems Analysis. But power began dispersing across the department after 1965. Centralization in defense came to involve approval-seeking from all parts of the organization in order to provide a unified front to top management. Admiral Hyman Rickover repeatedly pointed to the problem of layered decision-making in defense. The problem with decentralized execution of a central policy, as Rickover understood, was that it required detailed reporting mechanisms. When Deputy Secretary of Defense David Packard asked Rickover for comments on his draft memorandum outlining the 5000 series regulations, Rickover explained his displeasure. Quote, Your proposed directive states, It is the responsibility of OSD to approve the policies which the services are to follow and to evaluate the performance of the services in implementing the approved policies. So long as the bureaucracy consists of a large number of people who consider that they are largely performing their function of approval and evaluation by requiring detailed information to be submitted through the bureaucracy, program managers will never be found who can in fact effectively manage their jobs. A program manager today would require at least 48 hours a day of his own time just to satisfy the request for detailed information from the service and the OSD bureaucracies, the Congress, the General Accounting Office, and various other parties who have the legal right. As long as you operate a system where the checkers outnumber the doers, the doers can do little but spend their time responding to the checkers. End quote. Many others throughout the defense system validated Rickover's conclusions. 
One project official claimed to have conducted about 70 briefings associated with one DSARC milestone review. A major study found that program managers' communication with personnel in the Pentagon was five times greater than the communication with the contractors that he managed. John McLucas criticized the DSARC process in a July 1975 speech, finding a proliferation of review activities that generated excessive workloads and weakened surface responsibilities. Even though he was Secretary of the Air Force at the time of the speech, McLucas later found himself, quote, just another voice shouting into the wind, end quote. In 1971, Rickover told Congress that it wasn't just the 5000 series acquisition process that generated excess work. His biggest problem was the constant justification of funds for the next year, a process only connected to the 5000 series at the level of the Deputy Secretary of Defense. Rickover's request encountered 20 to 30 levels of administrative review before funds could be released. A Navy study found that the typical procurement request took 60 approvals from 25 separate offices. Throughout the layers, any official could veto a request. Yet only top leaders could get it approved. Rickover gave a colorful example of one person who set off for eight months acquiring signatures from 40 officials on a single document. Quote, then it was lost in the labyrinth of the system. End quote. The person originating the document simply gave up because by that point, all the officials had been replaced by newcomers. Rickover described how the poor fellow couldn't face the ordeal of starting all over again. In theory, layers of reviews are necessary for tying together disparate pieces of information. This was precisely the point of the move towards a program budget started in 1949. It gave leadership the ability to collect and analyze information on all the defense activities to ensure that the right programs got the right funding at the right times. To put it another way, when the policy objective is to take advantage of specialized knowledge by decentralizing administration, the middle manager faces a problem. Because his work is closely tied to that of every other manager, the actions open to him depend on the actions taken by other managers at the same time. Consequently, the plans of all managers should be coordinated before the fact at the highest levels to root out any misalignment of plans. From the standpoint of conscious design, competition appears less than efficient. The plans of some businesses stand in competition, and therefore at odds, with other business plans. Plan mismatches are discovered only after businesses have invested, and therefore wasted, resources. Bankruptcies are a sign that too many entrepreneurs have competed for a limited amount of consumer spending. The anarchy of competing plans results in continual waste that could have been avoided if the plans were rationally coordinated according to a single plan. In contrast to the competition between firms, the environment within a firm operates according to rational coordination. The entrepreneur's plan seeks cooperation among specialized employees, guiding them towards common objectives. Competition has therefore been a dirty word in administrative theory and socialism alike. It implies dysfunction in a system designed for harmony. The rise of large multi-unit enterprises in the latter half of the 19th century seemed to prove, using market-tested means, 
that cooperative planning was more efficient than competitive prices. Inside firms, management coordinates the specialized activities rather than market prices. For all the charges against monopolists, large enterprises simply outcompeted the small businesses at the turn of the 20th century by rapidly driving down prices. Managerial historian Alfred Chandler thought it was clear by 1977 that the invisible hand had fallen to the wayside. He wrote, quote, The modern business enterprise took the place of market mechanisms in coordinating the activities of the economy and allocating its resources. In many sectors of the economy, the visible hand of management replaced what Adam Smith referred to as the invisible hand of market forces, end quote. In the new industrial state, John Kenneth Galbraith recognized that the blackboard economics of supply and demand did not reflect what was happening in the economy. Firm administration was more than mere reactions to movement in prices by the invisible hand. Firms were not price takers. They had significant pricing power because firms had to coordinate research and development and production in advance of consumer feedback. Long lead times required firms to actively manage demand, such as through advertisement. Galbraith wrote, quote, The genius of the industrial system lies in the organized use of capital and technology. This is made possible, as we have duly seen, by extensively replacing the market with planning, end quote. In Galbraith's formulation, industrial firms required large technostructures of bureaucratic planning. Within the technostructures, decision-making was diffused across various specialists. This contrasted with the small entrepreneur-led firms of the past, where all coordination emanated from a single leader. The technostructure provided a lens for understanding the logic to layer decision-making throughout the defense bureaucracy. Galbraith, however, did not recognize the limit to rational planning. He simply assumed that the biggest firms would continue growing. He did not see a post-industrial world coming with its competitive startups. Galbraith assumed the opposite. Industrial firms would continue maturing until their functioning merged with the government. Galbraith wrote, quote, The industrial system, in fact, is inextricably associated with the state. In notable respects, the mature corporation is an arm of the state, and the state, in important matters, is an instrument of the industrial system. This runs strongly counter to the accepted doctrine that assumes and affirms a clear line between government and private business enterprise, end quote. The new industrial state was published in 1967. Two years later, Galbraith testified to Congress that the line between defense firms and government was a fiction. He pointed to the fact that major defense firms employed hundreds of the military's retired top brass. Defense firms, in his view, were an unaccountable part of the public bureaucracy. Soon thereafter, Galbraith wrote an op-ed in the New York Times arguing that defense firms were really public firms and should be nationalized. He found competition to be excluded in defense more scrupulously than under socialist economies. Only one-tenth of defense contracts were subject to competitive bidding, meaning 90% of contracts were directly negotiated with an incumbent firm. The situation left no chance for new firm entry. Quote, There was, indeed, no market between the firm and the government, Galbraith wrote, 
One public bureaucracy simply sat down and worked things out with another public bureaucracy, end quote. The president of North American Rockwell's Aerospace and Systems Group confirmed Galbraith's intuitions. Quote, a new system usually starts with a couple of military and industry people getting together and discussing common problems, end quote. Following the debates, Army analyst Wayne Allen alleged in June 1972 that there was little understanding about the nature of competition. He pointed to defense outsiders who found that a lack of competitive pressure led to profiteering, including Galbraith and Senator William Proxmire. Allen then pointed to defense insiders who found extreme competition in acquisition. David Packard, for example, discussed two areas prone to competitive pressure. First, competition within the military services to get programs approved. And second, competition among contractors to win a declining number of contracts. Allen wrote, quote, There appears to be some confusion over whether competition exists or does not exist. End quote. One of the most commonly cited statistics concerning competition in defense is the percentage of contracts that are formally advertised versus negotiated. As discussed above, advertisement and open bidding was the preferred method of government contracting. The process took the form of what market theorists called a procurement auction. It had the appearance of transparency, openness, and competition, all the signs of democracy and markets at their best. While advertisement was the standard approach to contracting, in 1948 Congress provided 17 broad exemptions allowing for negotiated contracts. The exemptions became the rule. Galbraith testified that competitive bidding through formal advertisement was only 11.5% of total contract value in the year 1968. But the fact did not worry Galbraith, who believed that the outcome was inevitable because of the visible hand's efficiency. Eventually, single-firm sectors would arise, aligning the buyer and seller's interests. The Department of Defense was showing the way for what future high-technology sectors would look like. The cozy alignment of plans was thought by Galbraith to encourage innovation, otherwise not well-suited to markets. Nationalization would in effect solidify the relationships, streamlining negotiations and increasing public accountability. Though he was asking many of the most important questions of the day, Galbraith's views was an outside one. Most Americans were fearful of nationalization. They wanted to bring market competition to the defense industry using arm's length procurement auctions, thus warding off Eisenhower's military industrial complex. To many analysts, the primary measure of market competition in defense was the proportion of contracts open to competitive bids. Preference for open advertisement and bid was reaffirmed in 1984 with the passage of the Competition and Contracting Act, or SECA. To Army analyst Wayne Allen, the prevalence of competitive bid procedures had nothing to do with the degree of competition in defense. Allen wrote that the proportion of contracts formally advertised and negotiated was simply irrelevant to the question of competition in the defense industry. First, even if contract awards were negotiated, they could arise in a highly competitive environment where the government evaluates multiple single-source solicitations. Second, contract advertisement could result in little or no competition. The outcome is plain when there is only one contractor able to bid, a monopolist. But it is equally true when there is only a single buyer. 
It doesn't matter how many suppliers are clamoring for an advertised contract. The buyer chooses the contract requirements and how it is awarded. All contractors optimize to that approach. Competitive bids can then result in a contract outcome no different than negotiated. Allen concluded that contract statistics say little about the nature of competition in of themselves. Understanding competition in defense instead requires investigating the pre-contract decision. In 1973, Wayne Allen joined the cost panel of the Army Material Acquisition Review Committee. The AMARC report highlighted the difficulty of getting funding lined up for a contract. The earliest stages of R&D, represented by budget activities 6.1 through 6.3, increasingly required project line itemization, which in turn required the coordination of fixed requirements throughout the bureaucracy. The AMARC recommended, quote, 1. Research and development efforts in the 6.1, 2, and 6.3 categories should be accomplished with low-level programs, full realization of technical risks, and no management promises. 2. The developer should build it and let the user try it and see if he likes it. The preceding issues conclude that the firm requirement should not occur until entry into full-scale development phase. End quote. The Army discussed how increased dependence on requirements coordination reduced diversity in weapons research and development. The Science and Technology Panel wanted to scrap the program orientation of early stage R&D budget. It wanted to provide single program element funding for each lab for its self-determinative funding. In effect, the AMR recommended moving back to budget classifications based on organization undoing nearly three decades of programming reform. The Navy agreed in principle, quote, The fundamental feature of the Navy's method of funding its laboratories derives from its method of presenting and justifying budgets to OSD and the Congress in terms of research and development work to be accomplished, not in terms of organizations to be supported. This philosophy extends to the technology base as well as through the engineering projects. Thus, in theory, no Navy laboratory is assured any funding, and in each year it must sell the services of its entire workforce. End quote. In April 1975, Deputy Secretary of Defense William Clements established an advisory group of OSD principals to assess the AMARC and NMARC reports. It concluded that OSD policy in the 5000 series was sound but not enough authority and responsibility had been decentralized to the military departments. At the time, the Department of Defense was still attempting to implement the recommendations of the Committee on Government Procurement. The lack of progress on the recommendations prompted Lawton Childs, a junior senator from Florida, to make a name for himself by initiating a string of congressional hearings in June 1975. First up in the hearings was former chairman of the COGP, or the Ch Committee on Government Procurement, Perkins McGuire. In a fairly short time, McGuire outlined the recommendations and looked to be dismissed. I have been told that you should never stay too long in a hearing, McGuire said. His former deputy, Robert Judson, was less reserved. He described how military requirements initiate a long process of justification and analysis. Detail was continually added to meet the approval of each stakeholder in order to make funds available. Prior to industry's competition for a contract, 
unvalidated pressures affected the design team from all sides. From above, headquarters staff provided long-range objectives. The using commands decided system types and threat analyses. Development commands implemented the policies and procedures, including budget justifications. From elsewhere, systems concepts, design, management, and technical support came from the federal contract research centers, industry, and the government labs. There were also reviews at the OSD level in accordance with DOD Directive 5000.1. Judson found that all these factors and more influenced the design team. The outcome of the process, Judson argued, was a predetermined solution prior to industry competition for the development contract. He explained how industry competition formally started at the engineering design phase, but the decisions made before that preset between 80 and 90% of the total program cost. Technical latitude became severely constrained by the time the request for proposal goes out. The contractors optimize against the predetermined solution and undercut each other on the cost estimate. Judson discovered how well contractors understood the pre-contract process. In order to get a competitive edge, contractors marketed their technologies to offices writing the requirements. The resulting requirements, it was observed, quote, often reflect proposals and promises made by one or several contractors, end quote. The requirements poll model of defense innovation was, in part, founded on technology first pushed by industry. Robert Hall, Assistant Comptroller General, observed the same problem, quote, an intense marketing effort would unfold as interested suppliers worked informally with the agency and its baseline system and detailed specifications. Unless wired in early, suppliers would otherwise have little chance at the ultimate award. End quote. Getting wired into the process required absorbing large overhead costs for many years. Robert Hall found that the B1 program spent six years and $140 million on paper studies before writing the development specifications. Seven companies spent $66 million preparing proposals, the cost being expensed as an overhead charge to existing contracts. Five companies spent an additional $36 million of their own funds in anticipation. Albert Shapiro doubted whether a U.S. company could write an aircraft proposal with less than 50 engineers and hundreds in support, roughly the same staff that European firms use to get new aircraft into flight tests. Industry executives stressed the importance of the pre-contract process. Quote, you have to get in on the ground floor or forget it, said one vice president for General Dynamics. Another representative said, quote, if you wait until the RFP, then you're dead. One official at North American bluntly described how, quote, your ultimate goal is to actually write the RFP, and this happens more than you think, end quote. Industry ended up spoon-feeding the military, marketing program solutions that requirements would be written around, because industry ultimately had the technical superiority to go on the offensive. Most of the pre-contract process happened outside of congressional purview. Robert Judson argued that when Congress doesn't get involved early in the decision process, when it doesn't engage in preventative medicine, it creates a crisis down the line which is solved using emergency room management techniques. Such management, he estimated, increased the overhead of acquisition rooms between 10 and 50 times. While the defense industry tried to influence program requirements, they still required approval from many corners of the bureaucracy. 
Each of the various layers of decision represented a set of stakeholders who had an interest in the program, no matter how remote. The effect of layered decisions can be substantial. A proposed project does not simply receive a yes or a no decision by a single group, resulting in the suppression of diverse opinions. Instead, the project goes through a succession of officials. The whole network of approvals encompasses varying patterns of bias. Often, approval for an official requires concessions, which increases complexity, such as requiring greater survivability, lethality, or range, or imposing business regulations and reporting formats. Packer said of staff approvals, quote, It is either you do this or that, or this is the end of your new idea, end quote. As the number of layers grow, the likelihood that even small additions accumulate into disaster becomes exceedingly high. Design pressures ultimately create contract requirements written on hundreds or thousands of pages, which imply severely restricted design space for competitive firms to differentiate themselves. On June 24, 1975, the Senate Committee on Government Operations heard a stirring testimony from industry consultant David Sorgel. He argued that industry decisions were locked in by the government. Sorgel began, quote, Mr. Chairman, I believe we are in a de facto situation of nationalized high technology industry. All that is left is to formalize the arrangement. Alluding to Galbraith's perspective, he said, quote, There are some of those who argue that to go ahead and nationalize selected segments of the industry will produce federal spending efficiencies and reduce the taxpayer's burden. I think it's pretty well agreed to that competition between contractors does carry costs to maintain long enough so that benefits can accrue to the buyer, both in product values and prices. These costs of competition could be eliminated by a political decision to nationalize. Why competition is so easy to reject is because downstream buyer benefits are hard to put numbers on. So it is more expedient to save money in the short run by eliminating competition then stand the expense of financing competition and hope for long-term imprecise benefits. I believe this trend towards formal nationalization should be reversed. End quote. Sorgel said that many observers on industry's side believe that since the 1960s, the United States had been in a situation of state-planned technology. Official policy had government select the conceptual design and refine it into a preliminary design, which in turn was used to prepare contract specifications. Industry then competed on constrained specifications and could only differentiate themselves on price. Responsibility for design choices were diffused throughout the defense bureaucracy. It led to the situation where assignment for blame for the poor outcomes could not be pinpointed. Were the government's early technical decisions at fault, or did the contractor mismanage the job? The question could not be answered in most cases. Quote, now, if you ask, who is the chief engineer here? Who's responsible for this split design process? Who's managing it? The answer is clearly no one, Sorgel said. Sorgel determined that the prevalence of cost growth in contractor bailouts was due to the split decision-making in the design process between the public and the private design teams. He explained how, quote, Bailouts are caused by settling on a single design too early with no remaining options and again, no one accountable for the design, end quote. 
Sorgel recommended providing private technologists more freedom to conceive new products and take responsibility for their outcomes. In other words, the freedom to innovate. Designs are inherently subjective, he argued. Different design groups, having different past experiences, would most likely create an obviously different concept to solve the same problem. But the exploration of alternative concepts can only occur if design teams are given the freedom to do so. Through product development, the teams are brought into competition. Sorgo clarified how this means that only one team economically survives and the other doesn't. The prevailing process, however, did not approve contracts supporting competitive designs to a given problem. Instead, it relied on what Sorgo called the government's super wisdom to select the correct technology from a declining number of industry suppliers. Only the biggest suppliers could compete in the long marketing and approval process, which absorbs staggering amounts of overhead costs. He said, quote, with 4,000 procurement-related laws and 3,000 pages of regulatory procedures, we have long ago locked out the marketplace of creative destruction, end quote. He concluded that a tendency towards monopoly resulted from acquisition policies that raised the entry cost for small and medium firms to challenge the large firms. The military services asked for fewer controls on early R&D activities so that they could do more free exploration of alternative concepts. What they got instead was tighter controls. The actions represented another step in the direction of what Sorgel called state-planned technology. Sorgel made many of the same arguments that Army analyst Wayne Allen did back in 1972. In fact, the two worked together on an electronic study during 1973. They correlated one-shot competitions on pre-specified contracts to the problem of a single buyer in military procurement. When major activities are coordinated before the fact, such as through requirements process leading to milestone approvals and funding authorizations, the result is a unified plan of action for the organization. When the organization is also the only seller in a market, it creates the familiar problem of monopoly. Being without any effective competition, a monopolist firm is said to have the power to extract value from its buyers. For the Department of Defense, the unified acquisition plan makes it the single buyer facing the private defense industry. The DOD is a monopsonist. Certainly, the public finds a monopoly in the defense industry to be unacceptable. But what about the government's monopsony? Should not a monopsony, Wayne Allen argued, be viewed with similar concern? He concluded that the suppression of competitive developments forced the services and contractors to fiercely compete on paper plans, which inevitably led to optimism and cost growth. Wayne Allen emphasized, quote, the root cause of cost growth on major weapon systems is monopsony. Cost growth is the backlash to monopsonistic practices. End quote. He continued to say that, quote, monopsony is a collective phenomena. It is an aggregate condition producing an aggregate result. No one is to blame. Everyone is to blame. End quote. It is generally assumed that a single buyer using its dominant position can lower prices. The concept of monopsony, Herbert Spiro wrote, quote, assumes the inability of suppliers to one customer to find alternative buyers of their products, end quote. 
Indeed, defense contractors are often unable to transfer specialized technical, marketing, and management resources, all of which, which are regulated by the government, over to the commercial sector. Spiro continued, quote, In effect, the monopsonist can command, at least in the short run, prices which are below even the marginal cost to suppliers, end quote. However, the situation introduces serious questions with regard to the long-run strengths of the industry. One industry executive remarked in 1970 that, quote, There isn't a company in this country today whose board isn't sitting up at nights trying to think of a way to get out of the defense business, end quote. By the 1980s, investors were rewarding companies for leaving the defense sector as industry rapidly consolidated despite growing military budgets. All this happened before the government encouraged industry consolidation in the post-Cold War 1990s, leaving only two, maybe three, prime contractors in each commodity class. Government powers as monopsonists in defense markets are often exerted through conditions and regulations placed on contract vehicles. For example, Government will not reimburse unallowable costs such as advertising in some forms of interest and puts caps on other costs such as pre-contract, travel, and training costs. Such costs are parts of normal business operations in the commercial sector. Special reporting requirements such as earned value management and other business data also contribute significant shares of defense costs. Perhaps most onerously, a long list of regulations restricted contractor decision-making. Murray Weidenbaum found that government decision powers extended to 1. Make-or-buy practices, 2. Selection of subcontractors, 3. Purchases made foreign and domestic, 4. Internal financial reporting systems, 5. Industrial engineering and planning systems, and 6. Minimum and average wage rates. Costs are expected to increase from such interventions unless one is willing to adopt the view that the government buyer can manage a private organization better than the company's own management. Such a view, however, is adopted in official policies for evaluating contractor operations, which presume that, quote, government analysts are better trained, more knowledgeable, and more objective or more dedicated to achieving more for the defense dollar than their counterparts are in industry, end quote. In many ways, the long list of rules and regulations mandated in defense contracts is a reaction to the government's disadvantage in contract negotiations. Rand analyst Frederick Moore found that government could not press its monopsony position in defense markets because it lacked the skills and resources to make the necessary technical and cost evaluations of its contractors' proposals. It must rely instead on information supplied by the firm. Special disadvantages to government in contract negotiations include asymmetry of rewards and disparity of status of bargainers. And when these matters do not take precedent, to press upon industry the government's monopsony position invites the charge of an arbitrary exercise of power. The government used its monopsony power in specific and reactionary ways, not to force the lowest possible costs, but to offset the information and incentive disadvantages inherent to its position. Firms must accept the government's conditions if they want to win work. They must also accept the government's pre-contract process, which seeks to generate a consensus on requirements. However, because of uncertainty as to technical and military feasibility, 
There is no single articulation of the future that all participants can agree on. The official consensus that generates a monopsony can only be reached by suppressing dissenting viewpoints. If dissension was tolerated and competing projects supported, then the central plan is no longer internally consistent. It reflects constituent parts that conflict with one another in terms of their assumptions about technology and environments. Some could only succeed if others fail. Such plurality stands in contrast to nearly a century of reform seeking to unify decision-making. The inconsistency of plans, such as those which naturally arise in a market economy, are fundamental to a system whose functioning is more complex than any individual's comprehension. For complex processes to operate, numerous interconnected plans must be made simultaneously by constituents with unique and partial sets of knowledge. This creates a degree of contention between plans, where the coordination is occurring after the fact. The rivalry of the 1940s and 50s that was stamped out by defense acquisition is necessary to generate the information that no rival on its own could have possessed in the absence of that rivalry. In the 1960s, Robert McNamara finally reined in the rivalrous competition. The system's analyses he relied on takes as given basic questions of technical specifications and cost. Those givens, generated through the consensus-building bureaucracies, are transmitted to industry which then competes for them in a narrowly and orderly sense. However, the real utility of competition is in discovering the decision-makers' givens, or what the product should look like, and how it should be priced. These are decisions of the innovator, not the consumer whose feedback comes in the form of sales against real competitors. The value of any choice cannot be known until the product is realized, and even then, institutions have their biases and military environments will change. Competition depends on divergent expectations and only provides after-the-fact realization of the preferred product, never an optimal product. As Armin Alchin explained in 1967, quote, In the private economy, other competing firms can duplicate or take different points of view about the nature of desirable products. But there are no two departments of defense to provide the competitive survival and selection of preferred products. Without competitors, a monopoly does not ensure that alternatives will be tested and explored with the efficiency of competing firms. A quiet, Uncomplicated life without so much bickering and fighting over wealth values of alternative products is more viable. Centralization under government context implies less exposure to testing of differences of opinion, easier suppression of alternatives, less effective response to costs, and the loss of flexible adjustments of programs despite more exhortations to the contrary." End quote. The most important aspect of the competitive view is that it establishes multiple buyers, as well as sellers, with overlapping interests to engage in exchange. If each participant has meaningful specialization, it is natural for these parochial views to emerge. It is in special knowledge that divergent expectations arise, and under uncertainty, the only way to discover whose expectations better conforms to reality is to execute the alternatives. Decentralized organizations naturally develop those alternatives and bring them into competition. 
Failure to deliver a product more desirable than the competitor acts as a filter, removing inefficient performers which otherwise could not be identified. Though superficially redundant and inefficient, the competitive process ultimately saves resources because of the filtering process. Scientific management demanded the elimination of redundancy. Through analysis, it claimed that the optimal plan could be selected without the need for wasteful competition. The drive for a single unified plan with a minimum of program overlap led to military unification, the rise of program budgeting, and the suppression of exploratory development. Secretary of Defense Lewis Johnson described the vision for defense planning in 1950. Quote, Unification has given us an integrated defense budget, in which the needs of the various services are balanced against the requirements of national defense as a whole, and appropriations are allotted accordingly. This has reduced needless duplication, inefficiency, and wasteful competition. End quote. His successor Charlie Wilson agreed in 1953 that, quote, Competition between military departments in buying must be prevented, end quote. In 1957, Assistant Secretary for R&D Clifford Furness said that, quote, There is some very severe and wasteful, difficult, unbridled competition, and this unbridled competition is undesirable, end quote. In 1961, Robert McNamara installed the ultimate expression of the active view of the planning, programming, budgeting system. Whereas in the 1950s, Army General James Gavin was able to personally authorize a $12 million development in the face of the Secretary of Defense's disapproval, such deviant behavior was more or less stamped out by McNamara's PBBS regime. The prevailing consensus appeared to revolve around efficiency notions, which regarded redundancy as wasteful. However, in 1956, John von Neumann described the beneficial role redundant processes can play in creating highly reliable systems. He found that a system, such as a computer, could be more reliable than its constituent parts, such as vacuum tubes, through redundancy. When one part fails, Backups are available. The paper set the foundations for high reliability engineering for the rest of the century. The idea caught on to theories of administration as part of a backlash to Weberian straight-line hierarchies of zero redundancy. Berkeley professor Martin Landau applied von Neumann's concepts to organizational theory. He recognized how the probability of failure in an organization, like any system, decreases exponentially as redundant factors are increased. Yet the driving orthodoxy had neglected the method for managing risks. Quote, Taylorism in scientific management demanded the wholesale removal of duplication and overlap as they pressed for streamlined organizations that would operate with the absolute minimum number of units that could possibly be employed in the performance of a task zero redundancy constituted the measure of optimal efficiency, end quote. Landau realized, however, that redundancy did not only entail adding duplication. Looking to biology for inspiration, he recognized how self-organizing systems exhibit a degree of reliability that is far superior to anything we can build. They entailed richly redundant networks that not only responded to known risks, 
They could be adapted and respond to unknown risks. Organisms diagnose errors as they occur, readjust themselves, and correct their constituent parts. Landau pointed to Bertalanffy's idea of multiple causal pathways, which provide systems with extraordinary adaptive power. For human organizations, Landau recommended pursuing several strategies, both simultaneously and separately. The competing plans acted as a kind of experimental control to determine which action performed best. He made the important observation that in a tightly ordered system, like the programmed budget, there are no comparisons to determine whether an error had occurred. The cost of errors, without hedging, could run very high. As Landau concluded, quote, It can be seen, then, that any attempt to program solutions prematurely is the height of folly. Managements may do this in the interest of economy and control, but the economy will be false and the control a ritual. For we are acting and organizing as if we know when we do not. Whatever claims are made for programmed decision-making, it is to be recognized that if the organizational structure consisted only of the absolute minimal number of parts, error could not be detected. End quote. Whereas simply adding redundant parts with some mechanism for control can ensure reliability for quantified risks, when the decision maker faces unknown unknowns, the redundant features require a rich network of causal pathways. When unanticipated risks materialize, the program suited well to the expected contingency may be ill-suited to the new situation. Alternative programs, which might have appeared superfluous or inefficient in normal circumstances, might then demonstrate utility. However, if the option to invest in redundant features were eliminated, then when risks materialized, the system could not recognize any other way of performing a necessary function. Without establishing competitive programs, additional resources would be devoted to the ill-suited program until it cascaded into a system-wide failure. The pre-contract process of layered bureaucracy very much narrows the range of solutions permitted. When industry is allowed to bid on a contract, many of the most important parameters of the problem are already fixed. The resulting competition then focuses on price. In other words, the contractors competed on allocating scarce resources towards ends that were given by the contract requirements. Rather than competing on critical questions of technical feasibility and mission needs, the contractors instead performed cost minimization procedures to the stated requirements. The acquisition process reflected the prevailing economic theories of the time. For many economists, the market functioned as a computer. It determined the solution to the set of simultaneous equations which brought supply and demand into general equilibrium. In other words, the market optimized resources across given means and ends. Competition was useful in that it pushed firms to lower price and raised output until the point where firms would start divesting from the market. Competition ensured that firms would not earn robber baron profits to the detriment of society. Yet Friedrich Hayek pointed out that the whole purpose of competition is to discover the parameters of the problems to be solved. Quote, which goods are scarce, however, or which things are goods, or how scarce or valuable are they, is precisely one of the conditions that competition should discover, end quote. 
Competition isn't just about bringing prices into equilibrium. More importantly, competition is the procedure where people discover better ways of satisfying each other's needs. Both the means and the ends are open-ended, as is the competition. For mainstream economics, both the means and ends of the market process were already known. A perfectly competitive market, for example, is comprised of many buyers and sellers who transact over a homogeneous good, all of whom have complete knowledge of resources and production methods. As Hayek observed, quote, advertising, undercutting, and the improving or differentiating of goods or services produced are all excluded by definition in perfect competition. Perfect competition means, indeed, the absence of all competitive activities, end quote. What was important about competition for Hayek was the freedom of entry and not necessarily the number of sellers, the range and value of alternative goods and not a single homogeneous good, and the discovery of new knowledge about economic activity and not a state of perfect knowledge. Just as economics neglected competition in discovering the parameters of the market equations to be solved, systems analysts neglected the role of competition in discovering the right parameters to include in their models. The greater the presence of uncertainty, the more important becomes the interactive process of competition. But the apparent disorder of the process has led to calls for its abolition. Consider the organization that subsumes all planning and proceeds under a unified direction. Naturally, program policies will arise which, some at the lower levels or elsewhere, find disagreeable. They have a difference of opinion about the risks and opportunities involved in economic activities. In a liberal market economy, these everyday people are allowed to become entrepreneurs. They can exploit what they perceive as mistakes in the existing supply by reallocating resources to higher-valued uses. They may then engage in competition with existing suppliers. Successful entrepreneurs have, in effect, fixed errors in the existing structure of economic production. Otherwise, incumbents would have been alert to the opportunities presented by these actions. They would have invested resources to capture the profit. Entrepreneurs benefit from comparing actual prices with their estimation of prices under alternative production methods. The misuse of resources results in a pattern of prices that invites entrepreneurs to bid away resources in order to allocate them towards higher valued uses, which is only made evident after the fact by economic survival and positive profits. Yet entrepreneurial activity cannot extend too far because eventually it would lose the guidance set by market prices. As Don Lavoie illuminated, quote, Centralization of any given firm cannot continue beyond the point where the knowledge generated by rivalrous bidding of its competitors is sufficient to rationally guide its economic calculation. Were the firms to centralize any further, it would increasingly find itself in the dark concerning the proper productive evaluations it should attach to the factors of production under its control. Unaided by the knowledge generated by its rivals, it would begin to lose to those less centralized rivals who could still benefit from such knowledge. End quote. Decentralized rivals can observe relative prices emanating from a monopolist, allowing them to speculate about different methods, a changing array of products, and their consequent effect on prices. These entrepreneurial activities are, through a process of trial and error, 
discovering new information as to what works or what does not work. Bureaucracy, on the other hand, was defined by Michael Crozier to be, quote, an organization that cannot correct its behavior by learning from its mistakes, end quote. The competitive process of discovering and correcting errors is what sets entrepreneurial organizations apart from bureaucratic ones. Thanks for listening to this introduction to an acquisition talk series called Program to Fail, The Rise of Central Planning in Defense Acquisition 1945 to 1975. Stay tuned as new episodes are released. For more information, or if you'd like to provide feedback to me, please visit acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again.